Welcome to Financially Ever After, where award-winning and nationally recognized financial expert Stacy Francis will bring you savvy tips and words of wisdom on how to secure your financial future before, during, and after divorce. For 30 minutes every other week, you'll hear personal stories from women who have either faced or are currently facing this transition. In addition, you'll also soak up knowledge and inspiration from the industry's top legal, financial, residential, and mental health professionals. And now here's our host, Stacy Francis. Welcome, welcome to Financially Ever After. We come to you every other week with top experts in the field of financial, legal, and emotional support to help you through the process of separation and divorce, as well as afterwards. On top of this, we also bring to you individual people who have experienced their journey. This giving you the wisdom that you need to make smart decisions. And today we have Amanda Trigg. Amanda Trigg is a fellow of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers and certified by the Supreme Court of New Jersey as a matrimonial law attorney. She practices family law, including divorce and all related issues, and she holds a few leadership positions, both in the New Jersey chapter of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, as well as the family law section of the New Jersey State Bar. To share her expertise, Amanda frequently lectures at continuing education programs, both on a local and national level. She has a very, very rich resume, which includes presentations, articles, anything you can imagine, really talking about the importance of helping families through this process. In her daily practice, Amanda applies her knowledge to the, of the law to help her clients find customized solutions, solutions that are, are right for her and right for those, uh, those gentlemen. She meets each family's unique problems. And for her, success for every family grows from the partnership that she builds with her clients, enabling them to move confidently into the next phase of their life. There's so much that I could say about Amanda, but know and be confident that this is a woman that has been in this field for many years and today brings us a huge amount of expertise. And Amanda, before we get going, I would love for you just to say hello, also talk a little bit about your firm and in particular, you're going to giggle. I'm afraid to say it. There are too many names and I know that I'm going to mispronounce one of them. So I just want to say a great big thank you and, and thanks for being here. Thank you, Stacey. Thanks for having me on this podcast. I'm looking forward to sharing ideas with your listeners about how they can protect themselves if they are worried about the status of their marriage or absolutely certain they're heading for a divorce. At my firm, which is based in Hackensack, New Jersey, the attorneys at Lesnovich, Marzana Lesnovich, Trigg, Okahoyne, and Okahoyne include eight of us who practice exclusively family law. We believe it's important to dedicate your focus to family law matters and to not dabble in other arenas because when people come to us, their family, their future, their conflict, and their worries are the most important thing in their lives at that moment. And yeah. they need attorneys who are going to be focusing on that and not 
also worrying about going off and dealing with other kinds of loss. So that is the type of caring we bring to the process, and that is one of the things that I would encourage people to think of right off the bat, is if they're going to get advice, what kind of person and what kind of lawyer do they want to get it from? And I hope that most people will understand the idea that expertise is valuable, not unlike seeking a board-certified surgeon. Seek a family law attorney, if you're going that route, who really specializes in the area. Mm-hmm. So if you're going in for heart surgery, you want to make sure you're working with a specialized heart surgeon, not necessarily someone that has an expertise with hand surgery. And, and essentially, you're saying the same thing when it comes to matrimonial law. I am exactly that. There is a lot of complication going on when we start talking about family finances, especially in 2018 going into 2019 with the impact of families with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Mm -hmm, We need mm -hmm. to make sure that we are focusing on what's happening now with every single family financially. Be respectful of the emotional past and the emotional present, but if we're going to deal with the finances, they need people like you on their team, and they need to make sure that they go into this with their eyes wide open. And so what what brought you to this field? I, I, I think it's always really interesting how people find themselves in in the matrimonial world. Is this something that you've always been interested in or is it something that your career path ended up leading you to? Happenstance brought me to family law. And Mm -hmm. I think that where you're in a situation where the world suddenly guides you to that path, you are foolish to ignore the signs and I didn't want to be that person. Mm -hmm. So essentially I was looking for a job and talking to my friends and someone led me to the job at a family law firm and I did all the things you were supposed to do to prepare to join this law firm, which was a boutique law firm, a small one in Atlanta, Georgia at the time. And I walked into my first interview super prepared with my references contacted, et cetera. And it turned out the hiring partner knew one of the one of my references. And so I sat down and he said to me, I spoke to her. She said to hire you, when can you start? Oh. And that's how my career in family law started. Sometimes the signs are there. And that's another message for people who are worried about their families. Sometimes the signs are there and you have to be respectful of them. A bad sign is not necessarily a death knell. But be respectful of the signs and start sooner rather than later getting the information that you need in order to plan your future. Yeah. And actually, I know that we talked a little bit about this before this podcast and talking about if you see things are starting to go south, if you're starting to see potential signs in your marriage, you know, that there are problems that aren't really being addressed or you don't feel like are going to be getting better how how can women start to get savvy about their finances? How can they prepare but not peak suspicion? Because that is what I hear is one of the biggest concerns of, you know, I've I've never known where the assets are. I've never I've never been part of the the bill paying. Um, you know, how do I start to insert myself in that without him saying, oh, wait, hold your horses. What's going on here? It's exactly the concern that many people have on the day that they feel like there's a problem. And the best piece of advice that we can give for starters is don't panic because Mm -hmm. panic will give you away. Panic will cause conflict where perhaps there is none. And nobody likes to be in a relationship where they feel like one person is operating in a strange, unusual, and fearful way. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. feel good as the recipient or the person upon whom it's reflecting. So, you know, my first recommendation to anyone 
is to ask. But don't ask on a whim. Don't ask in panic. Think about how you're going to put this out there because there are a number of different ways to go at it. And one of my favorite tactics is to essentially pick your moment carefully, certainly when the children are not around, very important for that, certainly when you feel like your spouse or your partner is in a receptive mood and is feeling good about you and about where you are, that might be at home, that might be in public, but perhaps simply say, you know, it occurred to me that if anything happened to you, I don't know the first thing about how to get the mortgage paid or who to turn to, and that worries me for the sake of our overall joint financial well-being. Don't use those words. Those are Amanda lawyer words. But in your own words, say the truth, which is that in the event that you are hit by a bus and are in a coma, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. If you feel perhaps like being more melodramatic, Sometimes there are stories on the news that you can leap yes. into to say the most terrible thing happened. This is a tragedy. We live in a dangerous time. If you feel the need to embellish your reason for asking and you are a reasonably proficient actor, go ahead. But otherwise, just ask. Because mm-hmm. one of two things will happen. Either you'll get the answer and sometimes with great relief because your spouse is thinking, thank God, I don't have to do this alone in perpetuity. And you will suddenly get the barrage of information of, sure, we'll sit down, there's a spreadsheet, we'll go see the investment advisor, whatever you need. Or you're going to get pushback and resistance and possibly anger. And that tells you something too because joint financial information should be truly joint. And a spouse that does not wish to share it um, potentially has something that he or she is trying to hide, potentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I say that with caution because the other thing that happens in any relationship fairly and reasonably is that there is a division of labor. And so one of the things I think that you and I always struggle with when people come to us at the outset is the shame that they don't know about the finances. Do you find that a lot, Stacey? They do. And, you know, I'll tell you, even in our marriage, there's a division of labor. My my husband pays the bills. I do all the investing. Um, you know, to be honest, what do we pay for a mortgage? Don't judge me, Amanda, but but I actually don't know what we pay. I have a rough idea, but I don't know actually what we pay for our mortgage. And so it's, I feel like it's not even just our clients. It's like you're saying, it's that division of labor of there's only so many hours in the day. And, you know, for, for most marriages, there's, there's no way that one, can, one person can just do all of it. Um, or, well, there are those marriages where one person does all of it, but there's a reason because they want that control, which is, I feel like, a whole other issue. It definitely is a control issue, and sometimes it is a control issue that's a negative thing, and sometimes it's just sheerly practical. I have Mm -hmm. the same issue in in my marriage, as you just described, and we joke that I'm finance and procurement. He's buildings and grounds. Mm -hmm. And so certain things are his responsibility, certain things are mine, and yes, I want that control, but it's because he'd never do it the way I want it done. And I don't mind sharing the information. That's not the point. But what I don't want any of our clients to feel is shame or embarrassment about the choices they've made to have this division of labor. And so to me, that's one of the things that we give our clients that is most valuable the first time they ever talk to us is to validate and say, it's okay. 
the choices you have made about how to divide labor are perfectly legitimate. And so to the extent that you need to say to your spouse, look, I realize we've done it this way, but I really would like to know a little bit more, that's a fair question to ask. Mm-hmm. And the other way of handling it, potentially, to go back to our concern about how do you get the information without making waves, is take, for example, someone who is in charge mostly of the children. I think it's fair to say to your spouse, our children are getting older. How are we sending them to college? What's the financial plan? Mm-hmm. What's, mm-hmm. Our estate, what's our estate plan? I hear all this stuff about the tax code changing. Let's make appointments with the right professionals to do an estate plan and to do a college plan. Or if they're going to send their children to private high school or elementary school, that's mm-hmm. a big financial decision that impacts college. So even the primary caretaker of children can hook his or her decisions or concerns about the children into a conversation of saying, I need to know more about money to be part of this. And I don't, again, think that that is inconsistent with that division of labor that people value and get a lot out of in a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I see what you're saying. These are all very natural, very natural, though, essentially as you mentioned, as kids are getting older, how are we affording their college? What does that look like? I love the idea of, of you then saying, well, can we meet with our financial advisor to check in to make sure we're on track? And, you know, so I know what we need to be doing. I think that's brilliant to try and set up those appointments. Does that something that you would, you would suggest as well? Absolutely. There's nothing confidential about it. I think there's this weird theory that people have that all that information is somehow confidential and privileged and that a financial advisor can only talk to one of the spouses. And you know, that's not true. It could be a joint relationship as well as it could be an individual relationship. So yes, I think that we, there are opportunities for an organic, natural conversation for people who want to be the most informed in a way that is non-adversarial and not alarming. That's the way to go about it is to just ask because Mm -hmm. turning to the other ways of doing it that's when it starts to get a little bit more distasteful yeah Um, not illegal we should talk about the difference between awkward and illegal those are different things but when you ask a client about what they know and how they can get information for you what what are the kinds of answers you typically get from people you know the, the things that they'll say is you know opening the mail going in the computer going in the you know locked files so let's let's set it up that you've you've asked your husband you've said you know what I really want to get more involved I'd like I'd like to know more and you have gotten that resistance that anger or resistance which as you mentioned tells you a whole lot a whole lot there's a reason that he's not being forthcoming so you're now at the point where it's it's not going to be coming from him so what are the other legal ways that women can start to get more more information about the finances? Because this area, I feel like, has a lot of gray, and there are also some very unique um, small small pieces that can move it from awkward to illegal, um, and you know, whether. It has to deal with you knowing the password, the password. I mean, I feel like there's so much that you need to know to make sure that you're not treading on the wrong side of the line. So the first one with how about opening mail? So what mail can you open? What mail should you not open? 
Sure. So for starters, we've got sort of three things to be concerned about in terms of the law. There are federal laws, which are implicated with the mail in particular. There are state laws, which are going to vary 50 times over. And then there's those gray zones where there is this developing law about intellectual property and online presence and digital presence that we are all waiting to see how it evolves from time to time. But starting with the old-fashioned what comes in the mailbox, assuming any of your stuff still comes in the mailbox right now, you will hear it said all the time that it is a felony to open other people's mail. Mm-hmm. That is that comes out of the federal code, and it based, the code basically says that if you take and open and secrete or, or, or sequester or keep for yourself someone else's mail, you are subject to fines or imprisonment not more than five years or both. So the, the penalties can be stiff. Yeah, that's a practical no. matter. That's a practical matter. What that literally could mean is that when you take the mail, if you take the mail out of the mailbox and bring it into your home, you could technically be committing a crime. So let's keep this real, right? We expect yeah. certain household chores to get done. When the mail comes into the home, for starters, too many people don't look at it. If something's in joint names, you can open it. It's addressed to you. Mm-hmm. If something is addressed to your spouse and you're not comfortable opening it, and you shouldn't technically, let's be clear, you can nonetheless note the banking institution that it comes from or the institution that it comes from because that tells you that there might be some connection to that bank. A word of caution, however, is that banks and financial institutions and investment opportunities are still blasting people with mailers. And Mm -hmm. too many people think that because he or she got one envelope in the mail from such and such a bank, there must be a hidden account there. That might not be true. So let's just say that up front. Don't assume that everything that comes in the mail means that there's an account, but look at what is in fact there. Mm -hmm. There's a particular problem with some of these investment houses where you have multiple accounts Mm -hmm. and there's a primary account holder, lots of sub-accounts, and a consolidated statement comes addressed to the primary account holder. So it's also possible that there may be joint accounts or individual accounts in your name even though your husband's name is on the piece of mail that comes. So that takes me to my next phase. When stuff comes in the mail that you don't want to open because it's not addressed to you, pick up the phone and call any of these banks with suitable precautions in case your phone records are in any way tracked or traced. But call and say, here's my social security number. I don't know if I have an account here. Just ask. They'll tell you if you don't. They'll tell you Mm -hmm. if you do. So you can follow through with what you learn from things that are in plain sight in the mail. So mail is the the easiest and most obvious one. And what about, uh, you know, so you have your social security number, your name. Mm -hmm. um, So any accounts in your name or joint accounts would would show up in that, that way. Can you also say, you know, my husband and I are trying to, put together a balance sheet, here's his social security number and name, does he have a account there? Is that something you can ask? They shouldn't tell you. Yeah, yeah, that's what I assume. Yeah, That's not to say they need don't him, do that, but they shouldn't ask. They and shouldn't they need him on the line. Right. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. something that I've heard done um, is, <laughs> which is naughty and I think probably I, I know the answer to of whether or not it's illegal of having a male person that you know, maybe it's your brother, maybe it's someone else, call and quote unquote be your spouse 
with their social security number and you know pretending that they're they are your spouse and asking that question as well and if that information is gets you to know about certain accounts that you didn't previously know that your husband is holding can you use that information or is that not usable because it was essentially garnered illegally Well, let's back up for a minute and indicate that most of those conversations are going to happen on a recorded line. And should it ever come out that you did that, you and the person who got information illegally essentially uh, could be in a lot of trouble. So I can't recommend that that tactic. But the reality is that, right, no matter how you got the information at some point, and we're jumping ahead a little bit here and we should circle back, but at some point there's going to be full financial disclosure in a divorce action. So at some point that you know to say to your attorney, Look, the TD Bank account isn't here. You need to ask about TD Bank. You, Mm -hmm. lawyer, or or somebody needs to subpoena TD Bank or ask about TD Bank is just an example. But if Mm -hmm. you have those kinds of concerns and you want to to push this, one other possibility for an open-ended conversation with your spouse could be to say something as obvious as, you know, if we're talking about refinancing, if we're talking about buying a new car or leasing something new, we should run our credit reports. We haven't done it lately. In this age of identity theft, and let's just hop on the computer. Let's just do it. We're entitled to them free. How often are we entitled to free ones, Stacey? Once a year? Uh, Actually, you can do three a year, one from Experian, one from TransUnion, and one from Equifax. So you can actually get them all at once, all three, or you can space them out throughout the year. Very smart. That makes sense. So to the extent that you say to your husband or your wife, look, I I think we should check our credit reports. Who's going to say no to that? Yeah, no. why someone, not? Someone who will say no to that is someone who's hiding debt, which is a whole other problem. Yeah. But it, to, to the point of just asking, the other way of, of handling it is, to, as you started to say, is look around in your home. See what's there. Mm-hmm. The fact that you've never really gone into the home office before doesn't mean that you shouldn't. It doesn't mean that you can't look around. Tax returns can be a rich source of information. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Not everybody, again, keeps paper copies anymore but they're out there. And if you don't have your tax returns, you can get them from the IRS. And the IRS will send you either a copy of your tax return for a fee or at a much lower fee, you can get a, what's called a tax transcript. Either, either party can get it. And you can see what was declared in sort of a summary fashion on your tax returns, which will tell you whether there were interest and dividends that were taxed. And Mm -hmm, if so, mm -hmm. what bank or investment kind of company they came from. That doesn't get you everything you need. It doesn't get you retirement accounts, for example. It certainly doesn't get you anything that's not in one of your names, if there are trust accounts and things like that. But again, it's another source of information that you're entitled to that you can tap without raising any suspicion whatsoever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you're ordering your tax return from the IRS or or a tax Mm -hmm. transcript, your spouse is not notified. Correct. It may come to the house and he or she may see it, but so what? Yeah, but so what? Yeah, that makes sense. Now, what if you um, want to look around for those tax returns? Mm -hmm. Is there a difference between a file cabinet that's, you know, in the home, you know, that, let's say, the living room versus a file cabinet in his home office that's locked? Well, let's start with the fact that interior doors in a home should never be locked. That's fire hazard. That's its own problem. But Mm -hmm. to the extent that you've been excluded from a space in a home that you jointly own, 
that's interesting. Wouldn't you agree that that creates yeah. an interesting dynamic? And the question is why? Do you want, there's always the excuse, keep the children out of it, keep the housekeeper out of it, what have you. But it's unusual for the home office to be locked yes. or for any one room in a home to be locked. So assuming that that's the case, my best advice as a lawyer is honestly to stay out because you yeah. don't need necessarily to create that risk for yourself because in all of this, we have to remember the difficult dark side to this is that there are women and men who are living in peril. And we do not ever want to give advice to listeners yes. to this podcast or to anyone in our off in their office in their in our offices that might put them in physical danger or more emotional danger. So if that door is locked, that's a point of contention. Don't do it. That being said, in a more general scheme, if a house is the one that you live in with your family, with your spouse, without a family, it doesn't matter. There should be no place you're not supposed to go. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are limits to good taste, and I would, you know, there certainly is, is her, his drawers and her drawers and his closet and her closet. But when it comes to the family finances and paperwork and whatever, there really are no laws that say that you can't go looking through absolutely anything and everything. Mm-hmm. The better legal advice is if you find something, quick, take it, make a copy, and put it back. Mm-hmm. Because everyone's entitled to the records. So mm-hmm. again, to, to your point, go home and look around. The fact that you've never looked before doesn't mean you can't look now. And the what basement if, can be a great source of, the basement yeah. and the attic can be great places to look. I, I have had this question asked to me and I didn't know the legality and I actually went back to uh, this woman's matrimonial attorney because I, I just didn't feel comfortable answering it. So the... There were numerous file cabinets in her house and the file cabinets were locked and it had all the financial data in it. Um, so for her, she didn't know, is it okay for me to go in and, and look at those documents? I mean, they're both of our documents, it's our home. Um, but again, they were kept locked. Now she had know where the key. She knew where the key was. You know, I don't think they were locked from her, um, but that was a question that I, I'll be honest, I punted over to her matrimonial attorney because I just didn't know how to answer it. It is a interesting question. Again, safety first, yeah. marriage and, and expectation second, and this whole question of why. I mean, if the key is sitting in your desktop drawer or hanging with all the other keys, then what's to stop you from taking the key and opening the file cabinet and at least knowing what's there and you can decide what to do with it. There is this concept, artificial and I believe incorrect, of privacy in your home from each other. And it's a weird thing to start to try to articulate because it means something different to everyone. It's that gray zone that you talked about at the top of the podcast that we don't really have answers as to what the law is. When you think you have an expectation of privacy within certain spots in your own home, what does that really mean to anyone and what's the law on it? I think that when it comes to a locked file cabinet, if the keys are just flat out there, I would probably, if a client felt comfortable, advise mm-hmm. him or her to open them and see what's there. Yeah. So at least we know. Yeah. Um, and then the question becomes if the file cabinet keys are just there, yeah. what about the computer? What about yes. that home computer, which is really what we're talking about in 2018 
what's the value of the digital information? And so that gets really interesting very quickly. And here I just want to sort of repeat that the laws do vary somewhat from state to state in terms of what privacy means and in terms of what you can and can't do. But in New Jersey, at least our rule of thumb is that if you know the password and it's a computer that is generally used or accessible to anyone in the home, that there is no, nothing on there you can't look at. Mm -hmm. I do not advise my clients, even if they know the password, to go into each other's email accounts. It gets mm -hmm. bad form. I think it could run very quickly into a violation of other things like if there are lawyers already involved, attorney-client privilege. Yeah. But if the documents are downloaded, if they're in the Internet history, if they're in the downloads file, that, that downloads file is an interesting place. Mm -hmm. doesn't hurt necessarily to look yeah. on the basic computer that everybody has access to. Mm -hmm. When it comes to other computers that are perhaps password protected or which are, are issued by an employer, you need to stay off them. If it's that important and you're that worried you won't get the information, then you need to get the lawyers involved on getting a court order for examination of the device. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing as far as with that computer where, again, that's where most of the data is, mm -hmm. if it's a accessible computer to the household, to everyone, um, you know the password, then some key things to do is to go to the download file, which that's where anything downloaded from the internet or anywhere else, there's always going to be a copy there. And it's there for uh, many, 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 many months, in fact, for many people permanently. Right. And then also looking at those chat, that history and in the internet sites and making sure that with those internet sites, there might be a couple different search engines. So, you know, looking at Google and then look at Safari, um, look at Chrome, look also at Internet Explorer, look at all the different ones that are on the computer because each one has its own history and may give you a little bit more information there. Um, these are some great ideas. You you also shared some things that I want to make sure we get to in the next couple minutes because in addition to tax returns, tax transcripts, running your credit report, you also mentioned um, if you've recently refinanced or obtained a mortgage or any other type of loan, trying to get the actual application for the credit would be helpful. And tell me more about that because I imagine that probably has a lot of gems too. It should, with the caveat that sometimes people exaggerate on some of these forms and applications. But that being said, there are three very common types of credit applications that are out there that we all are able to do at this point with such ease that we don't think about it as being a product that might be helpful to our lawyers or to our financial advisors. Number one is a mortgage, which is almost mm -hmm. always now an online application, right? Yeah. But it may result in a refinance, and it may be something that you can very easily get by calling up your mortgage company and saying, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I need a copy of our application. Mm -hmm. If you applied for it jointly, they should be able to email that to you in a heartbeat. And there okay. you should have a list at least of the assets that were used as the basis of your mortgage application. 
um, you should have some recitation of income. And we could do a whole hour on what income is and isn't for credit purposes and for divorce yeah. purposes. So again, the basic warning to anyone who's thinking about all this is to not overreact to anything that you read. You're, we're talking here about gathering data and then assessing the value of it later. But a mortgage application should be one of the easiest things to get if it's relatively current. If it's from 30 years ago, question the, the, the necessity of doing this. Same thing for a car application. They usually do that at the dealership, more or less, if you're applying to finance through the dealership where you're getting the car, whether you're leasing it or buying it. That is more typically in one party's name. So that can be a little trickier to get. But you never know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people do it jointly for some reason. Mm -hmm. But the last one that can be a nice gold mine within a limited scope of facts is if you have a child applying for financial aid for mm -hmm. college. And pretty much everyone applies hoping maybe they'd get something. I think you find that really even at your upper echelon of income and asset base, people fill out that so-called FAFSA. And they fill that out with probably showing as little as possible, so that's a whole other dynamic. But again, that's something that you would need to get your hands on through the financial aid department at wherever your child goes to school. Mm -hmm. And it could have been something you did last year. It could have been something you did a few years ago, but it might be something that will lead you down paths that will be helpful to your financial advisor or to your lawyer because sometimes it's about validating the information and sometimes it's about knowing where to look and saving yourselves a ton of time and money and agony by simply having some basic information on hand. You've gone through so much, and I want to make sure anything else that you want to share with the women listening, advice, tips um, to these women to help them get as informed as possible before they decide to move forward with a divorce or separation? Definitely. I think that information is power. And I think that it is important to consider the validity and the value of going to meet with a lawyer and a financial advisor as soon as you start to have these questions. Mm -hmm. There is nothing wrong with meeting with a divorce lawyer in a safe way, meaning that your spouse doesn't necessarily have to know about it. If there's a consultation fee, which there probably should be for advice that's valuable to you, find a way to pay that so that it's not traceable back and that you're absence mm -hmm. for two or three hours won't be missed. And start asking these questions from a professional because your friends and your family mean really well, but they don't know your life. Mm -hmm. And they are going to tell you somewhat what you want to hear. And they are going to potentially inflame your fears rather than help you answer questions. So that would be the number one thing, that information is absolutely power. You want to get that kind of professional advice. Secondly, is that there is a whole host of information out there that you can use to educate yourself without anybody being any the wiser, especially where you don't have to carry around a book anymore about financial planning and financial mm -hmm. advice. Mm -hmm. Download it to your phone. Download it to your, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, to your tablet or whatever it is. Stacey, I'm sure you have a reading list. I know I certainly do of things that I would tell people to read if they just want to start learning because it is very easy in this day and age to lose track of the different kinds of retirement plans that are, are really out there, to lose track of what the tax returns mean and how to read them. And if these are things that a woman wants to know in order to empower herself, well, education is power too, and it's within her own reach. 
very easily from credible good sources on the Internet for free or from the library for not because I think that that is another way that people can start to feel like they're going to have a better grasp of what to do with the information once they get it. That makes sense. That makes and sense. Then an, and then a last thing is, I hate to, to, to really segue into the other side of it, but if a relationship is going to end, eyes wide open, feet on the ground, and make that decision and get yourself back to those advisors before you are in a situation where you feel like time has taken away opportunities for you. Mm -hmm. Extremely, extremely wise words. And we're going to put all of this information um, in the show notes and also we'll share our reading list uh, for women listening here those of you who want to start to get savvy about money, um, I'm going to go ahead and give you my my favorite, favorite books that I adore. And I listen to these actually when I'm doing my, my training. I'm training for a half Ironman. And as you can imagine, it takes a long time. And so I'm out there running, swimming, biking. And I listen to these, these amazing books. And even though obviously I'm in this career now 16 years, you can always learn more. You can always learn more. So if I can learn more, you can learn more. Every person on this call can learn more too. So um, wanted to find out from you quickly, Amanda, how, how can our listeners find out more about your practice? And I also love that you're based in New Jersey because we have not had that many New Jersey matrimonial attorneys part of our podcast. And as women need to know, you need to make sure that the attorney you're working with has passed the bar in your particular state where you're going to be going to be filing. Absolutely true. Divorce laws, laws on support, laws on division of property vary from state to state. It's not federally based, even though I mentioned the Tax Cut and Jobs Act affecting alimony, which has some national repercussions, the majority of the laws that impact you are going to be state-based. And there's a lot of information about me and about my firm available on the internet. And the fastest way to link into all of that is through amandatrig.com. The law firm website is lmllawyers.com. But all amandatrig.com does is feed into our website, our social media, and our blog, which is always about issues of importance to people who are thinking about divorce, getting divorced, or have been through the process. Well, thank you so much. And we'll put in the show notes also um, all the information that you shared, Amanda, your contact information, which is great. And just a great big thank you to all the women listening today, financially ever after. We're coming to you every other week. And if you do have any questions about your finances that we can help you with, please do reach out to us. Um, Again, Francis Financial, and my website is www.francisfinancial.com. A lot of great content there for you. And you can also email me personally, Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll be talking to you in two weeks. <laughs>